I'm Marcus Smith, and this is the Constant Wonder Podcast. In this episode, as we've often done previously, we'll be looking for the miraculous in what seems perfectly mundane. If there is magic on this planet, it is contained in water. That line comes from Lauren Isley, a famous 20th century nature and science writer. So just how magical is this tasteless, odorless, colorless, inorganic chemical compound? Our guest today lives in the thrall of water. He touts the emotional and physical and spiritual aspects of being close to it and, as often as possible, immersed in it. Wallace J. Nichols is author of the book Blue Mind, the surprising science that shows how being near, in, on, or underwater can make you happier, healthier, more connected, and better at what you do. It's a bold proposition. That phrase, blue mind, is how he characterizes a way of thinking about water, a responsiveness to water's many properties, from fluidity and rhythm, think alpine waterfall, to tranquility and vastness, think peaceful summer lake. A blue mind embraces all that is positive about water. You'll probably see a link in all of this to mindfulness practices that have grown in popularity over the last couple of decades. Jay Nichols, he goes by his middle initial, has become an evangelist for blue mind thinking. For over a decade, he's spoken and taught and presented wherever he can, inviting people to think about water's contribution to wellness, explaining its impact on the human spirit. Here's something about Jay that helps explain his long-standing motivation. It's a very personal reason, from a very young age, for immersing himself in water. I recognize, started to recognize that I like it better in the water or under the water or on the water. And part of that was I stuttered pretty severely. I was called shy. Now they call people like us introverts. And underwater, people don't ask you questions. It's as simple as that. So you don't have to answer them. And I gravitated towards writing as well because I could write without stuttering. So I had that pull towards nature and wilderness, and in particular, watery places. Nature, wilderness, watery places. With these kinds of passions, a man like Jay should never have been recently subjected to the terrible irony of a forest fire that wiped out the family home he and his wife had built themselves from reclaimed Douglas fir and stone up in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California. That fateful event in 2020 will be part of this story, as well as a 2012 setback involving serious physical trauma to his body. Here he is recalling 2020. After the fire, there was a bit of a vibe that was, okay, blue mind guy, let's see if it works, this thing you've been talking about helps you with this devastating trauma brought to you by fire. Before getting to those two chapters, we need to hear how water tantalized him in his formative years. I'm talking preschool. If anyone was ever destined to have that title blue mind guy, I've come to believe that nobody was a more likely candidate from the get-go. 
And just to show you what I mean, I asked him about his earliest memory in life, a dream he had just as he was anticipating his third birthday. In this dream, he and his party guests were served tea in fancy teacups. And my teacup became extraordinarily large. It just kept growing. And then my friends and I, we just all dove into the teacup and went free diving, essentially. And the game was to dive to the bottom of the teacup to find a gift that everybody was to receive. And the gifts were these iron figurines. And one of my friends got a race car. I got a, an iron bear. We dove down for them and came up with them. And then we sat on the edge of the teacup and ate peaches. So that was the dream, very cute, you know, fantastic. And I loved dreaming that dream so much that every night I would try to dream it again. And I think that's how it remained a memory. Because at that age, it's really easy to forget a lot of things, almost everything. But because every night, even still talking about it, makes me feel very happy. And so as a little boy, I would try to dream it. And sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And that carried the memory that earliest memory of water, really, of swimming and diving, was in fact a dream. Over the next several years, Jay's fascination for the world around him would expand, as childhood worlds do, from that simple dream of diving for a metal bear in a teacup. But his joy in discovery of this wider world was still quite often tied to water. In a special creek he used to play around in, he got to know real-life forms that live and breathe, and even a few that snap, you know, like turtles. I'm going to say that he became infatuated with turtles. It was with his brother and some cousins in those teenage years that he first started behaving remarkably like a research scientist going after data in the field. We used to go to Cornfield Creek, the off-branch of Chesapeake Bay, and go out on the piers and catch snapping turtles. And the, the way we caught them was to tie chicken necks onto strings and then throw the chicken necks in, into the bay. And lo and behold, those snapping turtles would come along and chomp down on that chicken neck, and you pull the string slowly and get your net ready. And sometimes this big shell and this big head would come up to the surface, and scoop them up, and then we'd pull that chicken neck out of their mouth, paint a number corresponding with the number of turtles we'd caught that summer, and then release them. Sometimes we'd capture a turtle, and it would already have a number on its shell, and we'd write that down, and sometimes it would be a brand new turtle, and that one would get a number. I've never seen a snapping turtle. I don't even know how to behave myself around one. Help me out with what to do, and should I be frightened? And I already know about the chicken neck, but I don't know beyond that. Yeah. So there's one end of the snapping turtle that is worth avoiding, and that's its mouth. And they're called snapping turtles for a reason. And they can crush bone, and they can really do some damage. So when you're handling them, you want to maneuver yourself, especially your digits and your hands, your feet, your legs, carefully away from their mouths. So Getting a chicken neck out of their mouth is an ordeal. Carefully painting a number on their shell is as well. So you're kind of working on sort of towards the back half as much as possible, 
they're beasts. They're amazing animals. They're big and strong and heavy and just kind of gnarly. And sometimes they have algae growing on them. They almost seem like a jaggedy, raggedy, big boulder with limbs and a head that can crush you. At least that's how it felt as a kid. So, you know, you pull it up on the dock and it's an event. It's not like pulling a sunfish out of the water on, on the end of your fishing line. It's an event. It feels like a living dinosaur that you're dealing with. They probably, in my memory, seemed bigger than they were because I was small and they were my size in some cases, of big animals. But easily 100 pounds, a nice big snapping turtle. There's a lot of excitement and a lot of reminding each other to watch out because it's, it's living up to its name. It's snapping and it's not snapping for no reason. It's snapping for you and at you. You ever see anybody get an injury? Oh, I've seen body parts inside turtle mouths and have been involved in unlocking the turtle mouth from human flesh. And it's painful. It hasn't happened to me, but I've assisted in the, uh, the extraction of turtle from limb of human, a colleague that got bitten right in the inside of his leg. And it was it scared him a bit. He turned pale green because he was so freaked out by it. He's all right. He survived. You know, it would freak me out. It would definitely freak me out. And it leads to a very important question, which is sometimes we can be a little Pollyannish about the wild things around us and how wonderful they are. You know, the bison that people get too close to up at Yellowstone and people in the Chesapeake getting bitten on the inner thigh by a snapping turtle. Does that in any way uh, compromise your admiration for this living creature? I think it works in the other direction. I think it it increases the awe and the wonder. And I think that level of respect that big, strong, or fast, wild animals demand is what makes the whole experience so remarkable. A little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, maybe a little bit of jumpiness kind of woven into the awe and the wonder really makes it kind of pop a bit more. Maybe that's why catching those snapping turtles is so, so vividly clear in my memory, even though it was 40-something years ago. I, I have to ask you about this, because I'm trying to get into the mindset of you're actually doing this not just for fun, but it seems like you had some sense back then that this was important. Yeah, it felt like more than play, and it felt like more than just fun, if, and it felt very deep in my core somehow. And we, we weren't permitted, funded, given any kind of permission or approval. It was really just outside the lines, of course, but it felt purposeful in a way. And it felt, in a little kid way, kind of, kind of felt serious, like it had some substance to it. I had no idea at the time that people had a job catching turtles and tagging them. Uh, I had no idea. We just were playing and fumbling around and exploring and, and doing our thing. As a professional marine biologist, Jay would get paid to be in the water with turtles, capturing them, marking them, and recapturing them, a grown-up version of his younger self. And that led to him becoming a leading advocate for sea turtles. His research in labs from Minnesota to Mexico and beyond led to publications of all kinds about what turtles eat, where they live, what pollution can do to them. He was elected president of the International Sea Turtle Society and served on its board and launched or co-founded numerous organizations, all dedicated to marine life conservation. All the while, little by little, 
his hypothesis of a human blue mind was taking shape. Again, this is the idea that we humans respond naturally to water, are drawn to it, that in some way or another, it is a catalyst for wellness. But before he could become the Blue Mind guy, Jay would have to learn how to scuba dive because he'd be spending a lot of time under the water. And he took to that in college. Now, Jay wasn't your typical student at DePauw University. He skipped parties to go camping. He wrote a column called Wildlife in the school paper. And far from any ocean, he started scuba diving. I learned to scuba dive in the world capital of scuba, which is south-central Indiana. <laughs> I still think it, it's the best way to learn to dive because all of your dives are going to be better after you learn to dive in a cold, silty quarry in Indiana. So that's where I learned to dive. And the highlight of the dive, or, or checkout dive, was uh, apparently there was meant to be a, a railroad car axle that we, if we were lucky, we'd get a, a view of uh, at the bottom of the quarry. and Kind of murky down there, I would imagine. It's, it's fairly murky, and then you get a, a bunch of new divers who come in for crash landings onto the silty bottom of the quarry, and then suddenly it goes from poor visibility to none. <laughs> and they warn you. They say, okay, control your buoyancy and make sure you don't hit the bottom because it will silt up and stay that way for hours. And sure enough, one or more of your fellow divers is sort of flailing around in the silt on the bottom and kicking it all up. And then you're basically essentially diving in the dark. Later on in his professional career as a scientist, he would reflect long and hard enough about, well, can I call it his love affair with water? Uh, He began wondering, am I uniquely obsessed or does water have a beneficial impact on others too? Could it even be universally good for people? These kinds of questions can lead a trained scientist, a marine biologist, to go and get all sciencey about something we all think we already know a whole lot about, something as commonplace as water. So the evidence is coming from all corners. The psychologists who talk to people and listen to what they say and ask them questions on questionnaires have found that self-reported indices of happiness, of calmness, of well-being, of emotional health, creative health, spiritual well-being. On all of those tests, water enhances all of it. But we can't stop there. We have to actually do more than just take their word for it. So we measure heart rate and breathing rate, skin temperature, uh, blood pressure, neurological activity, levels of hormones such as stress hormones. And everywhere we look, from using all of the tools to measure oxygen flow and to measure electricity in the brain, all points to the same direction, that water is good for our emotional health. Water boosts our creativity. It creates a sense of awe and wonder, which boosts our compassion. And there are people studying the science of awe. And I think that's some of the most interesting and cool research going on right now. And what they find is water is the greatest source of awe and wonder on Earth, nestled within the broader category of nature. Jay would become the founder of the Blue Mind Movement, as he calls it. 
He's also currently a senior fellow at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies Center for the Blue Economy. That's an organization with a mission to promote sustainable human interaction with oceans and coasts. He's even been heavily involved in film production connected with conservation. And somewhere in all of this, he's found time to take up surfing, naturally. Watching people surf is easy. Imagining doing it is incredibly easy. And then when you finally get a surfboard under your body and you just want to paddle, you realize, wow, this is not like swimming. This is not like kayaking. This is something different. And then when you paddle out through your first wave, you go, wait, this is unnervingly different. I'm off here. You have to get the feel for the board and you have to get the feel for the water and the waves. In addition to that, you start to learn to read the water, read the waves. Even a small wave is just incredibly powerful. It's got a lot of weight, got a lot of momentum. The weight of the water behind that, it's a bulldozer. And so you're navigating that. Your muscles, they're very sore after the first day and the second day and the third day. But eventually, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You start to go, I think I get this. I get the way my body works with the water. And then you can paddle into the wave and feel it push you and pull you. And then the next step is stand up and get up on a knee or hop up onto your feet and then try to balance and then try to turn the board and flow with the wave and predict what it's doing. And then there's this kind of magical place you finally reach, maybe after a series of days or maybe even weeks, where you stop thinking. And that's really the trick, is to stop thinking about it so much and look up from your feet, look up from the water and look out at the beach, look out at what's way out there. When you're not surfing well, there's a lot going on in your head and a lot of concerns and a lot of second-guessing and a lot of self-critique. And that makes you fall. And that is kind of fun, but that's not the goal. And when you really just let all the chatter go and try not to try so hard and lose yourself to it, to the process, and as cliche as it sounds like, be the wave rather than fight the wave or challenge it, then you're surfing. You're in that blue mind place. That's why it can be so therapeutic because you have to think about nothing else. You have to really be there and be present and at the same time not think about it in order for it to work and loosen up. And that's why people love it so much. That's why I enjoy waves so much. Here's an assertion that Jay made repeatedly during our conversation. We've all got our water stories, and they're pretty rich. And sometimes they involve healing our bodies. Sometimes they involve healing our minds. Sometimes they involve healing our souls. And sometimes it involves healing relationships. I obsessively talk to people about their water stories. And if I'm in a room of three, with three people or 3,000 people, I ask, what's your water? Question mark. I actually do know what my water is, but I've told about canoeing and stingrays in my childhood in an earlier episode. So right now, let's just consider this claim that more than two people, Marcus and Jay, have got their water stories. 
We thought we would canvas for a few of them from the regular folk around us, and sure enough, we found a few people who are just about as obsessed with water as Jay is. We're going to share their stories throughout the rest of this episode. Don't worry, though. We've got plenty more from Jay himself. We're going to find out a little later in the episode, for example, how water was immensely therapeutic in helping him tackle PTSD after a traumatic accident. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is the Constant Wonder Podcast. As I just said, we reached out to some of the people close to us to dip in, you know, to soak in whatever they might have to offer us about the effect water has had on them. So let's meet the director of marketing at BYU Broadcasting, Sean Clements. In my 60 years on the planet, I've spent about 55 of those years in Southern California, mostly in South Orange County. But Sean Clements was an angry kid, right? I had quite a temper and I would get pretty hot-headed and my mom, Beverly, would send me outside. She discovered the calming effects of water on me, and she'd send me outside with the hose. And I would water the yard with that hose. I'd hose down the driveway. I would squirt down the cars. I love the smell of the water on the asphalt of the driveway. I would hose down everything. I'd be out there for a couple hours. It was just a calming effect on me. Now, mind you, this was all before the mega drought that has plagued the American Southwest for the last couple of decades. So I don't know that any of us these days would really encourage water consumption quite to this extent. Um, But I'm from Sean's generation and also from Southern California. The hose running on the family driveway, all those smells he talks about, I remember it all like yesterday. But Mrs. Clements' encouragement of her son's bluish-leaning mind sank in with young Sean, and he began surfing at age 11, got hooked immediately. And I'd get out of the water. I didn't like to shower off right away. I love the feel of the salt drying on my skin. And um, if you're listening and you're a surfer or you've been spending any amount of time in the ocean, you know that most surfers, they just carry around the salt water in their nasal passages. And I had many a time where I would, on a date or in the classroom, and I'd bend over and salt water would pour out of my nose, and I'd just laugh. And I always, I always loved that. I loved that I just had the ocean with me all the time, and it, it was a good life. Much like Jay's experience, surfing forced Sean outside of himself, and in his case, led to a kind of transcendent experience, experiencing the divine as he sees it. I don't think I knew this at the time as 11, but it was just had such a calming effect on me. And I found that being in the ocean came almost a sacred experience where I could sit and float on the water and it sometimes didn't even matter how good the waves were. It was just being in nature. What I would say is my favorite time to surf is always when the sun is going down. And on that West Coast, it sets. That sunset on the water, it's a magical time. I feel a closeness to God that is palpable. I feel his presence when I'm sitting on the water. All living things have a spirit, and I believe the ocean has a spirit. It's a living, breathing thing. I think the earth is a spirit, and it's a physical thing and a spiritual thing. And I think when we're in that and immersed in it, it can have a spiritual significance on us and help us to heal, to step away from worldly things, to step away from challenges and stress that we all carry with us. And 
So to the extent I was fortunate as, as a young boy to be able to discover that and not really understand it, just know that I was drawn to it. Let's get back now to Jay's story. In 2012, Jay and his wife, Dana, were living with their two daughters in California's Santa Cruz Mountains in that dream house I mentioned right at the beginning, the house that would ultimately be destroyed by fire. But eight years before that fire, Jay faced another challenge. It was one that would require him to turn personally, himself, to blue mind thinking in order to heal from PTSD. He was at his mountain home, alone, out doing some trail improvements with a tractor, dragging a cutter behind it. He was clearing out nettles on a trail. He liked to run this trail. And by this time in his life, he had already started presenting at conferences about Blue Mind, although publication of his book by that title was still a couple years out. And um, the rear wheel had ridden up on top of a log and so I was leaning, and I thought, I can just ride this all the way down to the end of the log and just hold it right there. It was a pretty big log. And then the rear wheel came off the log, and the tractor lurched to the left towards the edge of a embankment. And when it did that, the embankment gave out. So it, really, it happened extremely quickly. And next thing I knew, I was rolling off the side of this 30-foot-high embankment and the tractor just rolled and I wasn't seat belted in it was a big Kubota tractor with a roll bar fortunately and tractor landed eventually at the bottom of the cliff upside down in a creek still running I was tossed out but semi underneath it on my back in the creek and I don't know how long I was unconscious but fortunately face up and when I came to face up in the creek with the tractor running next to me. I just did a quick inventory and so is my is my head broken, literally, is my back broken? Can I feel my toes? So quick inventory. Okay, I'm okay. The next thought was, is my family okay? And of course they have no idea that I was even on the tractor and they're not around. So check, check. And then I thought, is the creek okay? Is there any oil leaking from the tractor going into this very uh, sensitive salmon habitat. That was my main concern. You actually thought about that? That was my third thought. I'm not going to say it was first, but it was my third thought was, am I wrecking the salmon habitat? And then I thought, oh, I better get out of here and go get something to stop any leaking that might occur. Adrenaline was coursing through his body, and despite a broken toe, a dislocated shoulder, deep bone bruises on one side of his body, quite likely a broken rib, he ran. Single-mindedly, he ran back to his house to get something to plug the tractor leak, you know, to save salmon and such. As a conservationist, you could say he walks the walk or, or runs, as circumstances warrant. Uh, later that day, his neighbors, much more experienced ranchers, would ultimately be recruited to get the tractor out of the creek without harming the salmon habitat there. And when my family came home, I was sitting, stripped down, got in the hot tub, I was sitting in there in a daze. And they immediately knew, like, what's wrong with dad? He looks weird and he's sitting in the hot tub. You know, that adrenaline, that big cortisol hit 
you know, the stress hormones has a long tail. It doesn't just calm down. It dissipates over a long period of time. And then there's this lingering post-traumatic stress or recurring kind of feeling of that, the injury, the trauma that sticks with you for a long time too. And a long time meaning weeks, months, years? Still, I'm still, if I'm going down an escalator and I'm not moving from just standing, I feel like I'm going to do a cartwheel. I feel like I'm going to roll like the tractor rolled. And I just either have to hold on tight to a rail because it feels like it's happening or I need to just boogie down the escalator. Jay's body eventually healed, but he got a diagnosis of PTSD that his family had to come to terms with. I had almost finished writing Blue Mind. I was right, ironically, right at the end of writing this book about taking care of ourselves using water. And so there was this opportunity to say, this is really um, uh, unfortunate and painful and distracting. And I have some ideas about how to take care of myself through this that I'm going to put into practice. And I think the kids probably had a really great front row seat on blue mind therapy. Jay was so scarred from that roll on the tractor that he didn't want to even consider surfing again. He just didn't have the confidence that he needed to keep his balance on pitching waves. But he did eventually summon up enough courage to try it again with some help. And I had the opportunity to surf with this group called Operation Surf. And they primarily work with veterans and first responders who have gone through some kind of mental and or physical trauma. And I also was apprehensive about being part of their group because I'm neither a veteran nor first responder. My injury was not related to that. And so there was an important moment when one of the veterans said, your brain doesn't care what caused the trauma, whether it was a tractor or an IED, so you're in, join us. And it was with open arms and a really a lot of generous love that I was included with Van Carraza and the group of veterans that he was working with that week. So we're out on the water and I'm with guys that have one arm and no legs and prosthetic paddle arm on the other side. People have seen the valley of the shadow of death, literally, and are there despite the heavy trauma they've been through. And I just, I'm just the guy who rolled a tractor <laughs> up the road. So I'm feeling a little inadequate in many ways, including my own brain function. But we're out on the water and Van is so good at this process and he's coaching everybody and coaching all of us to just really get out of your frontal cortex, really stop thinking about it, stop trying so hard. Your eyes out on the horizon of the beach not down on your board, not on the water, all the things that you learn and practice when you're learning to surf, but magnified because of this frustration. You know, I remember hopping up and I knew that I was, I had a chance to catch a nice wave. And I look over and Martin Pollock, who's a fellow surfer and a veteran, is up on his stumps. And he's the guy with a paddle arm and no legs. And we're surfing side by side and I look over at him and I look out in the distance and we just glide it all the way to the beach and that flow moment and catching a wave with Martin like that just made it all the better. That was a healing moment. I'm fortunate to have been included because I, it gave me the insight into 
what so many people are attempting to do through therapeutic relationships with water and really had an experience of blue mind therapy for myself. To make the case that we humans have access to some internal blue mind, we could maybe call it an innate inclination, even a yearning for the presence of water in our lives. Jay routinely points to several studies about water's positive effect on mental health. Something as simple as being around a large body of water, the trickle of a waterfall, a hot shower, cold shower for that matter, somewhere to swim or to float, or even landing in a hot tub after a long day. Any of these have been shown to decrease symptoms of anxiety and depression. I think Jay's point is perfectly illustrated in another water story from someone close to us. She's the college-aged daughter of our producer, Tenery Taylor, and her name is Maeve Norton. Maeve spent her early childhood in Seattle as a wet place before moving to the semi-arid climate of northern Utah. And contrary to what many people think, in Seattle it doesn't rain hard usually, but it drizzles, and it does that a lot. Water was very much just a part of life there. We sometimes laugh, people chuckle when, when people in Seattle have their umbrellas and you're like, mm, you're probably not from here because people don't really mess around with umbrellas. You just have a jacket, you put your hood on or you deal with it, you know. And it was funny because when we did move here, anytime it would rain, we would all go outside. Usually we jump on our trampoline. But it was like, finally, like we we feel okay. This is where we're comfortable. And so as everyone else is heading inside, we were putting on shorts, honestly, and going outside to, to just feel it, feel it rain on you. School came easily to Maeve in her younger years. Then in college, she started to have trouble focusing, likely due to her ADHD. I'm really not someone who can focus particularly well. I like to um, take my homework into the shower, and I'll sit there and, and do my homework, and that really grounds me and helps me sit down and actually get it done. Not to be indelicate, uh, but here's how one would go about doing homework in the shower. If you've got a bench and a shower head on a hose, you, you get down on your knees on the floor, you use the bench as a desk, drape that hose over your back, just in case you're wondering how to do that one. But back to Maeve's water stories. She is drawn to the ocean. I think... The ocean and that rhythm, maybe, really lets me brain my thoughts in a little bit. Think about one thing, focus on the water, instead of going a million miles an hour about a million different things. But Maeve lives in beachless Utah. Well, mostly beachless Utah is. But the main point here is that she can't get to a beach on a regular basis. Still, she does turn to water to help her cope with an anxiety that can sometimes be pretty severe. I always kind of say one of the nicest things I think my parents ever did was when we were remodeling our house and I'd had been dealing with a lot of severe mental health issues for a couple of years and my parents built this really nice shower in in the bathroom next to my bedroom and and I've used it a lot. And during that time, showering in hot water was kind of a big thing for me. I was often 
feeling anxious, feeling sad, pain, and I'd go back and forth between, you know, laying in my bed and taking a shower. I think that was really helpful and still is really helpful. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, a tool that I learned in therapy actually is to use temperature and use water as a way to kind of shock your system if you're feeling really distressed. There aren't as many skills that you can use when you're up in those higher levels. If you're, you know, above kind of 80 out of 100 on your distress level, talking through it, different things like that aren't going to help as much. But one of my go-tos for that feeling is to put my head in a bowl of ice water, which really does send a shock through you a little bit. And for me, it's resetting of my brain. First of all, you can't think about what you're worrying about if your face is in a bowl of ice water. It's not gonna happen. And so it really takes you out of that for a second and then also brings your body down a little bit. Jay Nichols, like Maeve, knows what it's like to seek out healing waters in the midst of a personal crisis. We're coming up soon on that story of how his mountain home burned to the ground after a bizarre wildfire. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. By now, I think it's pretty clear what it means to be operating with a blue state of mind or a, a blue mind state of being. I should note that blue mind is often described as an antidote to red mind. Now, these designations are in no way political. I want to be clear about that. But anyway, red mind refers to the fast-paced, anxiety-driven, on-the-grid, frenetic mode of living that so many of us suffer from. And even though many of us are looking to get a break from that relentless pace... It would be unfair of me to imply that red mind has no value. So back to my visit with Jay. I want to compare your concept of blue mind, the blue mind. This is the innate proclivity, the interest, the draw, the magnet, our love for being near, in, around water. I want to compare that with what your concept is of the red mind. And I think this is uh, very instructive that you don't out and out reject the red mind. Yeah, red, red mind is our new normal. You know, it's how we live. We wake up and it's grind time. We're encouraged to work hard and we have a lot of screens in our lives, a lot of information, a lot of lists, to-do lists, a lot of goals. It's a, a grinding culture and that's glorified and encouraged and the information richness of our lives is amazing, truly. And so people look, maybe the first thing they do, even while they're still in bed, is check their smartphone. And it could be even the last thing they do before they close their eyes at the end of a full day. Sometimes it precludes sleep and we sleep less. And when we get tired of red mind, we caffeinate so we can do more of it. And that isn't all bad, but if it's all you have, it will burn you out. Your body will at some point quit and break down. And that's gray mind, that burnout. It's the ashes that come after the red mind. Can I just posit something here? I want to suggest that with your concept of gray mind or, and then red mind before that, that if we are deeply engaged in that kind of mode of existence, we cut ourselves off from the chance 
to really experience wonder. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's some, some really important connection between what we call boredom and wonder. I can look back and think, wow, those times where I was slightly bored are the times that I went and learned things or saw things or went in a different direction. Uh, nowadays, every song ever written and every movie ever made are in your pocket. So boredom can really just disappear. You can always find somebody to entertain you on some app, and that's what they're there for. Uh, so those opportunities to just you know, calmly sit with your thoughts and the world around you and discover yourself and discover what's around you, to take the time. It takes a long time sometimes to catch a snapping turtle and to, to sit and watch that string disappear under the bay and then you watch that string slowly get taut and pull out and you go okay is it a blue crab or is it a snapping turtle and there's a whole bunch of subtleties to that and it creates our memories and our nostalgia so if you don't have that down calm time you may just miss out on that over the course of decades so red mind comes in seeps in wants to take up all the space and eventually can lead you to burnout, which is no good, really. I mean, unless you're an emo poet or musician, that maybe is where you live. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not otherwise very useful. So along comes COVID. People around the world were forced, because viruses don't usually invite, uh, abruptly forced to shift out of our red mind pace of living. If nothing else very positive at all, the coronavirus set the stage for a possible emotional recalibration, a new consideration of what life might be like at a slower pace. Uh, maybe we just traded one kind of havoc for another, but remember back to the very early months in many places, even outdoor areas were closed off to the public, which kept people from finding respite, relaxation in a woodland or at the beach. That's what happened to one of my colleagues who was in Southern California at the time. This could be you. She was forced out of that red mind space, but couldn't find easy access to any space really very supportive of her blue mind. I want you to hear this story, a water story, of one of our assistant producers, Anya Searle. Anya was living outside of San Clemente, California, when the country went into lockdown. Yeah, we had a really deep quarantine, especially there in the beginning. They closed down most public areas, and so beach access was completely off-limits for a while. We were pretty cautious. My mom, when we got home from the grocery store, would have us all go into the garage and wipe down every item of food that we bought before putting it into the fridge. We were really um, careful about wearing masks. How nice it might have been if the nearby Riviera Beach had not been closed off to the public out of an abundance of caution. Anya's family found themselves chafing at the situation. We did feel like the beach was a safe place to be as long as we were careful. But um, for a long time, we did respect that rule and stayed away. Until about April, May of 2020, when there was a super bloom of bioluminescent algae of a magnitude that's pretty rare. So under cover of darkness, which is the time to be watching algae all aglow anyway, Anya's family snuck past the plastic webbing that had been installed to block off the beach. As soon as we stepped onto the sand, our footsteps lit up. It was amazing. 
And the way that this bioluminescent algae works is on contact. So when the waves crashed, that's when it was the brightest. And so the more you moved and the more you moved around this algae that was in the water, in the sand, and in the water, in the ocean, the brighter it would light up. There's really nothing to describe it, but it just felt so healing. After not being able to go to the beach for so long, it almost felt like this one trip just made up for all of that. To be there and to have this family moment between us and this natural phenomenon that I wasn't sure if I'd ever see again was just spectacular. A radically different kind of light visited the California coast later that same summer. Lightning. Now, this whole hour, we've been very focused on Jay's book, Blue Mind, but we're going to turn our attention here to his latest book, one that seems on the surface to be very different from Blue Mind. It's a children's book titled, Dear Wild Child, You Carry Your Home Inside You. And this book came to be because of, well, lightning is what started it all. One fateful night put Jay's Blue Mind to the test in a way that all of us dread. Now, I've mentioned before that Jay and his wife built their dream home in the Santa Cruz Mountains, just above California's slow coast, so-called because of the pace of life there, couldn't be more different from the ramped-up energy of Silicon Valley, which is situated just over the mountains and redwoods to the north and east. Uh, In mid-August of 2020, their home burned to the ground. It was among the 1,500 buildings that were lost. Miraculously, only one human life was lost. A little over two years ago, we had this storm. It was a a dry lightning storm, and it was amazing. It was the warmest night I can recall with the strangest winds, and this storm came off the ocean, and lightning. We don't have lightning in central California. Very rare, exceedingly rare. And 10,000 dry strikes hit the earth that night and started 600 fires And some of those small fires connected to each other and became wildfires. And one of those fire complexes grew to over 90,000 acres and came up our canyon and burned our home and all of our things. And And not just your home, you saw redwoods ablaze, mighty redwoods. Yeah, yeah, redwoods and all the other trees and a thousand neighbors, not to mention the wildlife that weren't fast enough to move. and the other side of that, that fire is a moonscape. No really other way to describe it. Just from this green and rich and biodiverse system to a moonscape. Interspersed in that moonscape were people's fireplaces and chimneys and burnt metal remnants of their material lives. And uh, we were fortunate to have no harm to ourselves, to our family, to our pets. Um, but our, our, all of our stuff, including... The house is gone. And uh, my oldest daughter, Grace, had left the day before for her freshman year in college. Uh, went out to the East Coast with her mom and to start that chapter of her life. I went back to check on the house with my younger daughter and found the devastation. And um, needed to communicate that with Grace. I felt the burden of doing it in a way that would keep her moving forward on her journey, her education, and the opposite coast. Because she immediately wanted to come back and help. And I said, there's nothing much to come back to, and you'll help most by staying where you are. I couldn't really speak on the phone. I cried, and when I heard her crying, I cried more. 
And so I wrote her a letter instead. The written word is my go-to and always has been. And so I wrote her a letter and to try to hold these memories of home in a happy place and keep her moving forward. I reminded her that, you know, her home did its job. It gave her memories and she explored the redwoods and the coast and the tide pools and the creek and the food of the region and played hard out there and slept well in the house that we built around her and lots of friends and family moments. We never did lock the door ever in 20 years. It was always open for people. And so reminded her of that in this letter and reminded her that she carries all those memories deep inside of her forever in there. That letter became Dear Wild Child, the book, and it has bright, beautiful illustrations of the interior of their home, their heirloom piano, their cat, the parties they held, but it also addresses the bleak devastation head-on, and its publication meant that people started to talk to him and to his daughter about their tragedy, and Jay wondered if this was really something he should have put on his daughter, making her private experience so very public. When the book came out, we were excited. A stylized sort of portrait of her is on the cover. And I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, what have I done? Is this beautiful book now a burden? But I asked her in a long conversation. Um, and much like when I published Blue Mind, it opened the door for people to share their water stories. And some of them were very heavy and beautiful and sometimes tragic and even sad. And I'm trained as a turtle biologist, not a therapist. And so I received those stories and empathized and discussed. And then sometimes after a book signing, I was wiped out in a way that I really did not expect. So I had that thought about Dear Wild Child and that this is Grace's story. And it actually is a vivid depiction of her life. So I had a thought, that thought, you know, oops, is this, a, this is a heavy burden. And she assured me, she's good. <laughs> she's got it. No problem. And I think she meant it. If you go on that adventure to fall deeply in love with nature, with life, with water, with forests, I guarantee it will break your heart. And that's just part of it. And if we raise children to fall in love with the world around us and with fellow humans, you can guarantee that heartbreak is part of that. And I, I think the other option is to avoid falling in love, which is, to me, it's an, a non-option. So we fall in love with each other and we fall in love with places and we fall in love with turtles. And then we have our hearts broken into a million pieces and then we get up and fall in love some more, hopefully, and work and fight for what we love together and remember all of it and keep going. Jay, um, what you've offered here is, is just it's very moving to me, and I relate to it in a big way personally. Uh, I never know how to ask this kind of a question. You've been so generous in sharing uh, real feelings about this. Fire and water. Mm. Beautiful. Hideous. Um... Surely, having devoted so much time for years to evangelizing in, in, in behalf of the benefits of water and the beauty of water, and the draw, the pull, the, the need we have for water, you've done this. You wrote Blue Mind. You've, you, you're talking to the public all the time into conferences. At some point when that fire came, 
I just don't know how you handled the irony of the fire entering your life and being just as potent as water. It is, isn't it? I knew that intellectually. I didn't know it in my core until I had a front row seat on a mega fire. And it is. Fire gives us life and it will take everything, just like water. They are so compatible in, in ways. And then water is how we stop the fire. And I'm still figuring out what how that all works together as, as a scientist and as a writer and, and as a dad. But that it's a, it's a lesson and a half for sure. And the red mind, blue mind toggling is part of what I'm learning. And you know, immediately following the fire, I felt pulled into the creek that flowed adjacent to where our house was. And I found the deepest spot and stripped and got in. And, uh, there was ash on the surface of the water and this moonscape and still smoldering stuff, um, possessions, and just got in and went under. And man, that felt good. I cried in the water. It felt so good. Unbelievably good. And um, I don't know what not getting through those experiences really is looks like, but I felt close at some points and uh, just the, the devastation and the heaviness of it. And, sort of the sense of failing at the responsibility of caring for family heirlooms. My grandmother's piano that my kids grew up playing and the um, photo albums that no longer exist, that existed in one place. And that was with me you know, to pass on um, photographic records of family members that are literally gone from birth. And just feeling that, that failure kind of, but just getting in the water helped an awful lot doesn't bring anything back, doesn't really solve problems in and of itself, but um, the reset button is really good. Jay Nichols says that everyone has a water story. If you've got a water story that you'd be willing to share, uh, reach out to us on Facebook and we can continue this conversation there. If you have photos to share with your story, email them to us at constantwonder at byu.edu. The email for you again, constantwonder at byu.edu. We might post them on our Facebook or Instagram, and you can search for us on both platforms at Constant Wonder Podcast. Wallace J. Nichols, J for short, is a marine biologist and author of the books, Blue Mind, The Surprising Science That Shows How Being Near, In, or Underwater Can Make You Happier, Healthier, More Connected, and Better at What You Do. And the second book, Dear Wild Child, You Carry Your Home Inside You. He co-wrote that with his daughter, Wallace Grace Nichols. Tenery Taylor produced this episode with help from Lily Jensen and Colson Darrington. Sound design by Kira Brewer and Kevin West. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.